Gracious Lord, we thank you for uh, your word that endures forever and that indeed is living and active more so than a two-edged sword. We pray, Lord, that your word would uh, pierce and cut our hearts this morning so that you might mend them, heal them, and out of our brokenness bring the beauty of your blessedness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be talking about knives, swords today. I want to start by asking, have any of you ever had to go under the knife? I know there's a few of you have. Okay, most of you have. I did too once. Uh, so if so, were you anxious or were you assured going into it? Or both? Okay, both. Well, to the extent that you were anxious, why were you anxious? Unknown. Unknown, okay. Just that uncertainty. Anybody have to stay awake during a procedure? That, Bob, you've done that? I've done that. That can, be a, that can add another layer of it. You're a little bit squeamish, you gotta watch it. Or I remember when I was getting, um, what do you call it? Not staples, but um, stitches. stitches. When I was a boy, and of course they didn't put me under to do it, They're, they put the anesthetic on there, but you can still feel it. Like it doesn't hurt, but you can feel them sewing up your leg. Weird. Um, anyway, I digress. So the anxiety, that is, I think that's natural. Right, you're going into surgery as unknowns, uncertainties. So, to the extent that you were assured or you felt okay about it, why was that? I knew the surgeon. Okay, you knew the surgeon, yeah. someone that you had, and that I worked with. That you so worked that, with. That, that was my anxiety too, is I knew a lot. About yeah, <laughs> so. you knew too much. <laughs> right, right. So I knew what to pray for. You knew what to pray, pray for. Against. Yes, yeah. good. But I, I chose her especially. Okay, so you knew the surgeon that gave you that extra level of assurance. Yeah, Esther. I was in God's hands. You were in God's hands. And so I, either I drop dead here, in which case I'm with Jesus, or I'm, I'm better. So win-win, right? <laughs> Easy to say in theory, but uh, you know, it could also still be a little bit anxious. Yeah, Hans and then Margaret. Yeah, I was young and invincible, so didn't Oh, you were young and invincible, and so you're like, oh. That's me too. Yeah, you too. You're like, ah, I know it's going to be fine, because it's just always fine. Yeah, right. Yeah, Margaret. Mine was a robot, though. Yours was a robot. Did that make you more assured, more certain? I don't know. I would be a little bit hesitant about yeah. that, just as I've seen that robot trying to suck up stuff at my house, oh. and every five minutes, beep, 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 beep. I don't know if I want this guy performing surgery on me, but you worked, it worked out okay for you. Yeah, you're here. Okay, good. Um, so I think this is, uh, to Sandy's point especially, when we talk about uh, the divine surgery that God's going to undergo for us, that can be maybe a, a little bit anxiety-inducing, the way that the Lord works on you and me. But we are assured, we are confident, because we know the surgeon. Yeah, because we know the surgeon. We know that we have a faithful Lord whose desire is to uh, bless us and not to curse us, whose desire is to heal and not to harm he has taken the ultimate Hippocratic oath, right? And so with that assurance then, we know that when he goes to work on us, it's good. Even if for a little while, it might be a little bit painful. Let's dig in then to Hebrews chapter four and read verses. I'm gonna start just with those first couple of verses here. Verses 12 and 13. The preacher says this, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All right. So here, a couple of verses, a couple of words on the word of the Lord. Under part two on your handout, number one, the word of God is like a divine dagger, or you might think of it this way, the scalpel of the spirit. The scalpel of the spirit. The Greek word that's used here for that two-edged sword is a machaira. Machaira. And a machaira is a small sword or a large knife. Okay, So don't, don't picture like one of those great big swords like in medieval times, but it's a small one. Uh, you know, you think of uh, Crocodile Dundee, right? No, that's a knife, right? Uh, it's, so it's the kind of knife that would have been used to carve animals. Which again, you hear that and you're like, okay, what's God going to be doing us? He's going to carve us up with this scalpel of the spirit? Not exactly. But just pause on that thought for a moment that this analogy, this metaphor, which is not um, only used here in Hebrews, of course. You think especially of Ephesians 6, that great armor of God passage. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, The Word of God, there compared to that sword of the Spirit. Or again, in Revelation chapter 1, it's that glorious vision of Jesus. Jesus exalted and at the right hand of the Father. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, his word. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, Scripture uses different analogies for the word. Sword is one of them, and perhaps one of the more familiar ones. But what are other, can you think of any other metaphors or analogies that are used for God's word? Fire. Living. Okay. What's that? Living. Okay, well, it's living. We'll talk more about that in a, sec- in a second. But in terms of like other concrete sorts of um, images that are, are used for the Light. word. Say again? Light? Light. Yep. Light. Lamp. Lamp. Mm-hmm. Like a hammer. Is my word not like a hammer? Yep, that's right. Uh, any, any other ones you can think of? Truth. Truth? Certainly. I would say, I mean, that's, that's just straightforwardly what, what that word is for sure. What about um, Jesus tells the parable of the sower, right? The sower goes out to sow as a seed as well. Each of these different images, I think, illuminate and highlight different aspects of God's word. Here the preacher uses specifically the sword. And so I just want to think about, reflect on the, the features that he brings to light um, when thinking about God's word as a sword, as a scalpel of the spirit, if you will. Recognizing there's other images and there's more that can be said about God's word. But there's three things in particular uh, to be lifted up from these verses here. So the scalpel of the spirit is, first of all, as Dave said, it's living. It's living. And that in two senses. On the one hand, it is alive. So you can read a really good book. You can read a great novel or some Shakespeare, whatever it might be. You got your James Patterson, all right? And you really enjoy it. And it can, you know, you read it and it's exciting. It's a real page turner. But at the end of the day, it's still just words on a page. What we have in the Holy Scripture and in the Word of God is a a book, a word that is alive, that's able to draw us into the story. It's more like um, this 80s book and then turned into kind of a creepy movie called The NeverEnding Story. Sam, we watched that movie last year. Do you guys remember this one? The NeverEnding Story. I'm not going to recommend that you run out and get it necessarily. Uh, But its primary um, kind of premise for the story is fitting with this idea because the kid's reading it, and as he is reading it, suddenly he's drawn into the world. He becomes part of the story. So it is with the Word of God. It is alive. 
But not only is it alive, it is also life-giving. So it's living in the sense that it gives life to you and to me. To give just uh, one reference, which connects to an, another metaphor we just mentioned, 1 Peter 1, Peter says, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So that word is alive, and that word is life-giving. Just think about that in your life, that when those times when you might be dragging, feeling low, but just to have a word of scripture can just vivify you, can't it? Even if you just hear it or come across it, you might see a, a word on a, a billboard or something like that, and just right away, that scripture is able to breathe life into us. That's the word of God. But not only is it living, he also says it's active or it's effective. Just to say it's infallible, fancy word that means it does as God pleases. It does as, God's ple God, as God pleases. When God sends forth his word, it gets the job done. This connects to another image that's used in Isaiah 55, where it describes God's word as what? Sandy, you're nodding your head. Oh, uh, Put you on the spot, sorry. Yeah, I, I was just thinking it doesn't return. It, it, well, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the, the rain and the snow that come down from heaven, right? The rain, which will soon be snow, I'm told, next weekend. We'll see. <laughs> I'm not so sure it doesn't return void, but no, um, we look forward to that. And uh, it, it accomplishes that for which it's sent. So Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. No, Sandy and I are just, we're right on the no, same wavelength. I know, yeah, I know you did. Um, but this is, this Bob can attest to this too. This is the verse that every preacher hangs his hat on. Because at the end of the day, what matters is not my words, but God's word, right? And that always accomplishes it. It's what all of us, insofar as we are neighborhood ambassadors, as we are witnesses of the king, it doesn't depend on our persuasiveness, on our eloquence. It depends on the power of the word of God. It is active, it's effective, it gets the job done. Get her done. What God does with his word. Yeah, George. The, the attitudes that you talked yeah. about this morning. I mean, that's something you can live by. Absolutely. Yeah. The Beatitudes. You read the Beatitudes, and this is the kind of thing that, you know, wiseacres might say, you know, more wiseacre than me, say, Jesus says something like that, and you're like, if this guy isn't the son of God, then he should be. You know? <laughs> like, this is so powerful and so beautiful, so evocative that it can't help but lodge in your soul. By the way, I was tempted to include it in the sermon, but I didn't because I can't talk about The Chosen every week. Um, but if, for those of you who have watched the, the show The Chosen and you hear me talk about it a lot, they so beautifully um, and powerfully portray this moment of giving the Beatitudes. Chip, was that in season two when it does the yeah. Beatitudes? Yeah. It's the end of season two. At the end of season yeah. two. It's worth revisiting because season three is coming up uh, soon, I, I heard. So anyway, so go ahead, Bob. Real quick quick story when we were overseas working in a small village after about two and a half years I was invited to an evening situation I won't go into details but it was really a, a reenactment of a burial of a pagan guy because it wasn't satisfactory and they ended up butchering 23 pigs to appease the spirits wow I went back to my cabin at night a complete failure I mean just after two and a half years of preaching the gospel right. I'm still stuck you know butchering pigs then a month later the head elder of the village came up to my cabin 
missionary, he said, we're ready. And I said, we're ready for what? He said, for, for baptism. I said, in my good Lutheran fashion, you didn't go to my confirmation classes. <laughs> right. And anyway, I queried him a little more. And he said, you remember when we dedicated your cabin, you gave each of us the gospel of Mark. It was the first mm. gospel that mm -hmm. had been translated into their language. Yeah. And every family got it. He said, we have read this over and over. And then he said, I shouldn't say we. Our 10 or 12-year-old children read it to us. Because wow. most of us don't read. Right. And on the last page it says this. Yeah. All of us want to be everyone in the village. And it was from children reading the gospel. Wow. Well, Praise God. Like this, the, the word is powerful. This is why we have organizations like... Lutheran Bible translators, right? This is why it's so. This is why Luther was his first task, his primary task with the with the Reformation was not to go around nailing things on walls, but to translate the scriptures in the the lingua franca or the lingua deutsche, as the case may be, um, into the the language of the people, so that they could hear it and read it for themselves. It's a beautiful thing, and it's because we have this confidence that God's word is living and it's effective. And then, third and finally. It is piercing, it says here, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's laser-like. It hits the mark. God is able to touch the, the, the most tender spot. He's able to, to find that exact place that his word needs to, to hit, scalpel-like. Think of Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches and then you have this response from the crowd. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, it says. It said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's what God's word often does. Cuts us to the heart. <clears throat> I, I mean, on any given Sunday, um, again, as, as a preacher, you have an idea, you have an intention with the message. Here's how I want it to be heard, how I want it to be received. But I've had countless examples. Every preacher can tell you this, and perhaps you've had similar experiences where someone will come up to me later and say, oh, when you said this, it really struck me. And it's like, I'm not sure that I said that. Or that's not, that wasn't my point, or whatever. But you know what? You cast the word out there, and God accomplishes it. He does with it what he wants it to do. It's a remarkable thing. It pierces, and it divides. It cuts to the heart. But it wounds in order that it may heal. More on that in just a, just a moment. But this is when we think about the word of God as the scalpel of the spirit. It's effective, it's living, and it's piercing. Hans, did you have something you want to Yeah. Um, it talks about a two-edged sword. Yes. A, right, a single-edged sword can also be very sharp. Sure. Why did that imagery that, is, is it because one side cuts the, the spirit and the, and the right. flesh? Or is there yeah. something else going on that's... I don't know enough about swords to be able to say that specifically. The, the first thought that comes to my mind is just that connection with Revelation, that that's the image that comes out of Jesus' mouth, is it's a two-edged sword, so that's kind of just kicking the can. Well, it's a two-edged sword because that's what is, we see coming out of the Lord's mouth. Well, why there? I don't know. But I don't know. Anybody have thoughts on that? Yeah, Bill. Well, I don't know the exact answer, but I think a single-edged sword or knife is meant for slicing. And a double-edged sword is like a bayonet. Okay. You know, it's meant for piercing. For piercing. Yeah, it, 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 a bayonet or a double-edged sword from the Romans yeah. that a centurion would carry, he wasn't interested in slicing the opponent. Yeah. He was interested piercing. in piercing the opponent. 
Good. I, or they yeah. announce the same thing. That sounds good to me. You, you can enlarge the, the wound. Mm. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, George. Uh, I think in battle, uh, going like this to this yeah. is better than black. <laughs> what does Zorro have? He had a point. It was round. Okay. It was, again, it was a piercing. Yeah, it's a piercing thing. Yeah. I, I like those answers. And I think theologically or um, uh, figuratively, we might say also the two sides signify law and gospel. You know, so that God's word has those two ways. Like we was that last week, Reformation Day, we talked about that. His word, word works both in law and in gospel, both to convict and to console. So there's different ways, I think, to, to look at that. Good question. All right, but then it goes on. He doesn't stop there. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Number three on, on your handout, on page, top page two, the divine surgeon has vision sharper than any MRI. <laughs> he is able to see right into our souls. Just to give you a couple of scriptures. Psalm 33, the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. 1 Corinthians 4 speaks of how God will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. And then get this, Romans 2, Paul says, On that day, capital D, day, the day of Christ's coming, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, it strikes me that when I hear verse 13, it sounds like the fiercest law. That God is going, that no creature is hidden from his sight. That he's able to see into the deepest depths of my soul. And a story is told of a, a Sunday school teacher, a, a friend of mine, um, talking about, um, within, with the little kids, and sharing about <laughs> Jesus' words, Matthew 28, Jesus says, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And the, the Sunday school teacher was talking about that with the kids and saying, isn't that wonderful, children? Jesus is with you always. And one of the kids starts crying. <laughs> Why are you crying? Because if he's with me always, then he can see all the bad things I do. <laughs> so is it good news or bad news when Jesus says, I'm with you always? <clears throat> Both, Right. Like you get, there's a way of hearing that, that you're like, oh no, then he sees me. He knows me. There's no escape. But it's also good news because he sees me, he knows me, and he receives me. Yeah. You know, we always talk about the second use of the law as a mirror right. showing us our sin. And I really prefer you've got MRI or x-ray. X-ray, Because yeah. there's an intentionality about what he sees because he's x-raying it for the purpose of healing not for the purpose yes. of condemning yes that's exactly right so do you guys hear what bob said you know this this image of an mri or an x-ray um to speak of god's word he is he is exposing not to judge but to uh forgive right not to harm once again but to heal that's his intention that's his his purpose and so to hear this word to hear this word uh, of, of law, frankly, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed the eyes to whom, of him to whom we must give account. We have to recognize it's not the sort of thing that, okay, then God's just going to leave us out hanging. 
but it's precisely to bring us back to Jesus so that in those broken places, he can mend them up, forgive them, and make them whole again. This is the the way that God works. And I think uh, when we we think about this, uh, our Lord with his scalpel of the Spirit connects with this image of Jesus as the great physician. And I say number four here, under the watchful care of the great physician, we are in good hands. That's the bottom line here. Under the watchful care of the great physician, we are in good hands. Because you know your surgeon, you can be assured. You needn't be anxious under his care. And uh, T.S. Eliot, in his poem, East Coker, I think he's, he's playing on this theme. Uh, listen to these words. I've got it there on your, on your handout for you. <clears throat> he says, The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Underline that phrase, sharp compassion. That's what that word of God can feel like, right? That two-edged sword. It's a sharp compassion. He goes on and says, Our only health is the disease if we obey the dying nurse whose constant care is not to please but to remind us of our and Adam's curse and that to be restored our sickness must grow worse. I think by the dying nurse, he's talking about priests, pastors, those who are administering the word that we ourselves are, as Henry Nouwen said, wounded healers, right? But that uh, our prognosis or our prescription is to remind God's people of our and Adam's curse. And if we're going to be restored, the sickness must grow worse. In other words, you have to recognize, Jesus says, I have not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. Yeah, Andrew. Could he also be talking about Satan? Um, in what way? Say more. Uh, reminding us of Adam's curse that we are born to die. Okay, so yeah, that's another way of looking at it. That This is what Satan wants to do. To the contrary, that he's the dying nurse whose constant care is to remind us of our and Adam's curse. Okay, there's a way of, of reading it that way. It's T.S. Eliot, it's not scripture, so I'm open to all sorts of <laughs> interpretations. But get this last paragraph, next page, last stanza. The dripping blood our only drink, the bloody flesh our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. And so where he's ultimately trying to lead us toward is to recognize that we don't stand before God as sound and substantial flesh and blood. We stand before him as those who are wearied and weak, as those who are not substantial, who come to him in our lack, in our poverty of spirit. And then he gives to us the dripping blood of, his, uh, of, of the wine, the bloody flesh of the bread. That's where our, uh, our health truly is found. Yeah, Esther. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's exactly right. I come, O Savior, to thy table. Though weak and weary is my soul. And I almost think, does it say though weak and weary? That's what I said just now. But isn't that the right word? I'm not sure that though is the, is the right word. I come, O Savior, to thy table. Not though I'm weak and weary. But because I'm weak and weary, right? I come to your table because I recognize that I need the medicine of immortality that you alone can, can offer. I love that hymn. Don't mean to. I think it's the word for. For? for we okay. Let's, I think that's probably. I'm like, that hymn is too good 
to have said though, for weak and weary is my soul. Yes, good. All right. So then let's go on now to the last part of uh, chapter four here. Some of just the most powerful verses of the New Testament. We read this passage on Good Friday every year. Just heard Good Friday. Um, And so that just, I think, underscores the significance of these verses we're about to look at here. So Hebrews 4, starting with verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now these verses are actually a little bit of a transitional moment for the preacher, as now he's kind of introducing and anticipating where the next five or so chapters of Hebrews are going to go, where he's really going to unpack this idea of Jesus as our high priest, and he's going to delve deep into the Old Testament, to Leviticus in particular, but in other scriptures as well, to Melchizedek and all of these different things. But as he prepares to enter into that next stage of the sermon, that we have this book as this book of Hebrews, he's kind of introducing it in this really powerful, potent few verses here. And the upshot of these verses is basically, why can we as followers of Jesus, as his disciples, why can we pray boldly? Why can we pray boldly, confidently coming before the throne of grace? He gives to us no less than three reasons why we can pray boldly. First of all, under part three on your handout, we can pray boldly because Jesus, our great high priest, is ascended and at the right hand of the Father. This is what it means when it says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now again, he's going to develop in great detail the contrast with your earthly high priests who were were passing into the tabernacle. If they were unlucky, they were passing out (laughs) and needed to be dragged out. But Jesus has passed through and into the heavens. He's ascended and at the right hand of God. This is the first reason why we can pray boldly. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is why we can pray boldly, because Jesus is there. He has the Father's ear. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Not only that, he's interceding for you and me constantly. Those days when you feel like your prayers are faltering, you don't know what to say. It's, Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8, he says the Holy Spirit offers up those intercessions that groans cannot express. This is why we can come before God boldly because we know we don't have to have it all figured out but we're praying to him. You don't have to say just the right words and you certainly don't have to say it in some King James English. <laughs> oh, thou great God, I have beseeched thee with the... You know, I always have to remind the kids. The kids seem to do this kind of intuitively. Like, okay, Lord, we must thou. We never talk like that. You don't have to pray like that. Uh, John Kleinig, wonderful John Kleinig, he says that um, prayer, that God gives to us like a prayer uh, spell checker. Okay? Um, But it's like a prayer checker. Because you come before the Lord and just like spell checker says, oh, you said this. Are, Are you sure you didn't mean this? (laughs) <laughs> right, corrects those <laughs> misspelled words. When we pray before the Lord, 
the Son of God and the Holy Spirit are those prayer checkers where we offer up whatever middling groans we can give. And Jesus is like, I know what you mean. Let me bring this before the Father. The Spirit says, I've searched his heart and his mind. I know exactly what he's trying to say. That's why we can pray boldly. And I love to, to point out the profound theology of the artwork in our chancel here at Trinity. And I can't say whether or not it was intended this way, um, but let me just lay out for you how I look at it. Uh, in the chancel, on the altar, you have the crucifix. You have our Lord Jesus in his position of, of humility and suffering. And then uh, above it, you have the painting, the image of the ascending Lord. So here you have Jesus crucified and dying. And then we have the painting of Jesus resurrected and ascending to the Father. And then we have the stained glass. Now on one level, that stained glass is an image of Jesus when? Garden of Gethsemane, right? Praying for, praying for the disciples. But there's another way of looking at that, I think a second layer of seeing it, which is Jesus not only at Gethsemane, but now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and for me. Here you have the whole theology, just in those three moments and movements, Jesus crucified, resurrected, ascended, and now interceding for you and me. I find great comfort in that window. As I look at that, as we gather together for worship, I look at that and I think, here our Lord is present, and he's interceding for us even now. In that stained glass window, if you look closely, you remember where Christ says to the disciples, can't you stay awake with me even for an hour and pray with me? Right, right. And there's two, there's two of his disciples Passed sleeping out. on the rocks <laughs> to the right of Christ in that, in that stained glass yeah. window. Yeah, I know sermons like that. Yeah. I, <laughs> but didn't we just hear that uh, poem from Wendell Berry last week or a couple weeks ago? That we may reap. Great work is done while we're asleep, you know. Uh, God gives to his beloved while they are sleeping. I think it's, it's a, beautiful, a beautiful thing. Yes, Jesus does admonish them, say, can't you stay awake? But he doesn't say, you know what, forget the whole thing. I'm out of here. You know, these guys can't even stay awake. But it's in those moments of complete helplessness that God gives his greatest help. So you can take of that what you will, but that's the way that I kind of read and look at the, that artwork that we have, and we are uh, blessed to have it here at Trinity. Second reason why we can pray boldly. We can pray boldly because Jesus, our sympathetic Savior, is just like us. So it says in verse 15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So uh, the, the word there, the, the Greek word is sympatheo, okay, from, which literally means to suffer with, to suffer with. So if you sympathize with somebody, you suffer with them. So Jesus has done for us. He was tempted in every way. Now we see that uh, most emblematically, paradigmatically, in his temptation by the devil, right? Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Was that the last time that he was tempted, though? By no means. And actually, that passage ends with, I can't remember if it does in Matthew, but in Luke, it says, then the devil left until there was an opportune time. Now, it's interesting, um, biblical scholars will point out that perhaps it's specifically referring to when he's on the cross. Because 
what's the word that Satan is hurling at Jesus over and over again? A powerful, potent, little two-letter word. One that's able to really get at him. Remember what that little two-letter word, two word is? If. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then when Jesus is on the cross and all of the, the religious leaders, the passers-by are coming by, what are they hurling at him? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. That little word, if, is the temptation that our Lord Jesus lived with because he has to wonder that most essential question and doubt, is God for me? Is the Father with me? It's the same question in a sense that um, Satan, the serpent, needled Adam and Eve with in the garden. Did God really say? You sure that you can trust him? Is he going to have your back? Do you know that there isn't going to be medical malpractice by this divine surgeon? Can you be sure of it? That's still Satan's primary method, causing us to doubt and to question the goodness of our God. If, 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 if. But Jesus endured those temptations and underwent all of that for you and me so that he is a sympathetic Savior. He suffers with us. He knows what that's like. He's been there. Isaiah 53, we uh, cited this a few weeks ago, but it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Remember I told you the, the Hebrew word there? Anybody remember what it was? Yada, right? The yada is a knowledge. It's not just a head knowledge, but it's this experiential knowledge. It says in the same word in the scriptures that Adam knew his wife. Okay? He didn't just know her in his mind. Right? There's, it's that knowing that's that deep and it's holistic. So Jesus knew grief for you and for me. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We can pray boldly to our Lord. Because he's been there. Like that old saying, you know, walk a mile in somebody's shoes. He's been there. He is there for you and me. I find that to be a great source of comfort. Yeah, Bob? That last if you talked about, it seems to me at that moment Satan understood what was going down. Mm. He needed him to get off the cross. He needed him to get off the cross. So at that point, our Lord Jesus chose to stay. Yeah which is more than just suffering by accident. Yes. He willingly stayed there. If I, if I want to, I can call down legions of angels. But that's an interesting thought that now all of a sudden Satan has realized, oh, wait a second. This was not the... I walked right undoing. into it. This yeah. is my undoing. This is my undoing. Yeah. Hans, did you want to answer? Yeah. I think that you, you were mixing two of the uh, temptation of in the, in the wilderness mm -hmm. and many of the other temptations. But I think the temptations in the wilderness were almost God-level temptation. It's like, you know, I'm gonna, you feed, the, feed those people right. and the kingdom's yours. Right. Or get up and do a miraculous sign. Float down into the middle of the temple court and yep. then all those people are going to worship you forever. And yep, exactly. Those are, you know, and give glory to God. Yep. And it's like, I think it's the other temptations that, that he kept coming out, like when they tried making him king. Well, and all of the, what's a recurring theme with all of those is make a shortcut, right? Yeah. You, you can do, you can carry out your, your Jesus goal without your Jesus ways. 
Okay? But I say it a lot. Jesus is not only the truth and the life, he's also the way. You can't have Jesus ends without Jesus ways. Right? Jesus knows I, there's not going to be a shortcut here. I'm not going to uh, just you know, magically wave the wand and become king. It has to go through suffering. It has to go through death. And that's a lesson for us as the body of believers to recognize this continues to be how Jesus operates in the world. Not through strength, but through weakness. Not through grasping for power, but by giving it away. That's the pattern of our Savior. The temptation of the evil one is constantly, ah, maybe there's some shortcut to the kingdom. Well, we must enter the kingdom through tribulations, says Acts 14. So why can we pray boldly? First of all, because Jesus is ascended at the right hand. Secondly, because Jesus is just like us. And then thirdly, because Jesus is not like us. <laughs> he's both of those things, right? He's just like us, fully man, but he's not like us. He's fully God. He is, as it says here, yet without sin. He's been tempted in every respect as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus' rhetorical question to the religious leaders, which one of you convicts me of sin? And the assumed answer is... None of you, right? They can't. I, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Or again, 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus becomes that sin offering, though he himself did not know sin. He is fully man, but he is also fully God. And the, way I, the, way that I, the image that I always think of in my mind of why this really matters as I go back to the uh, American movie classic, The Princess Bride. And uh, that scene when they're in the, the forest and there's the quicksand, right? And if we're both in the quicksand, if all you have is a sympathetic savior and Jesus is like, oh, you're in the quicksand, I'm in the quicksand with you. And you're like, well, misery loves company, but I'm not sure that's really helping me, right? When you're in the quicksand, what do you need? You need, like, you need somebody who's on solid ground, right? You need somebody who's not in that sand with you, who is on that firm ground, who's able then, who's above you, who's able to, to pull you out, right? And so, yes, we have a sympathetic Savior. He knows what it is for, for you and me to be in that place where we are. When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. Uh, but what wondrous love is this, God is also able then to reach down and to pull you and me out. So we can pray boldly to Jesus and not, and this is one of the critiques against that notion of praying to saints. Like, what, you're, a saint is just a fellow guy in the quicksand with you, right? Well, I, it, makes, it makes no sense. We pray to the Savior because he's the one who actually can do something about it. Yeah, Chip. In an effort to extend this metaphor way more than it should be. I'd love to do that. Doesn't, doesn't Jesus jump in the quicksand with this? I don't know much about quicksand. Doesn't he push us out of it, but then he dies in it? Oh, okay, I like that. You know, See, now right. you're thinking like a preacher. Right. Yes. I mean, so he has to die. Yeah. Someone's got to die for those, for those, those, those ascends. Yeah. So he takes our place and pushes us out of it. So we have a, one of the recurring books at our uh, reading time in my household is, um, what's it called, Dan? Sam and Dave, the story of Sam and Dave. Sam and Dave dig a hole. That's what it's called. <laughs> and Sam and Dave dig this hole, and they are sinking down. They're going lower and lower and lower. They're looking for something stupendous or something fantastic. And the story's hilarious because they, they keep just missing a diamond, and the diamond keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they keep, like, right before they hit it, they're like, no, let's go this way. 
Um, uh, there's probably a parable there for leaders and decision makers and so forth. But um, at the end of the story, they drop through the bottom. They come out, they never come back up. They just keep going down, 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 down until finally they come out the bottom and they come back to where they started, but it's transformed. And this is kind of what you're, you're saying, Chip, is that Jesus doesn't just stay out of the quicksand. He goes down, he goes all the way down and then comes out on the other side and is able to lift us up. So, yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, Carla. That phrase from uh, Corinthians, he made him to be sin. Yeah. He absorbed it, exactly. Like the rag man. Like, exactly, the rag man. That's why the rag man is so powerful and spot on. And um, it's the movie Green Mile does this too. You see the movie Green Mile, which is, believe it or not is a Stephen King story. Um, there's another beautiful image of that kind of um, transference of sin to the righteous sufferer. Well, bottom line then for, for this section, number four on the back page of your, your handout. Our prayers are limited by our imagination, not by his generosity. Our prayers are limited by our imagination, not by his generosity. Ephesians 3 says, Now to him who is able to do, he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen to that, right? Far more than we can ask or imagine. George, I love you. You brought this out as we talk about the, the front yard, right? And how we're, we want to use the, the front yard. And George has been good on our task force and said at the voters meeting as well. Like, don't come to it, uh, that project or anything that we do at church, with a mindset of like, well, you know, what was us? We've just got a little bit, you know, well, we've got our five loaves and two fishes. How did that work out before, right? We tend to have that sort of mindset of scarcity scarcity is not a word for the kingdom of God. Abundance is. We come to, to the Lord with our middling efforts and resources, and he's like, yep, I can work with that. Give me whatever you got. He's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or imagine. That's a powerful, beautiful thing. I want to share that anecdote. I've told it many times, and I'll continue to do so. Um, from the stories told about Alexander the Great, probably apocryphal, but it doesn't matter, uh, <clears throat> that Alexander the Great, that uh, you know, Roman, or Greco-Roman emperor back um, before the time of our Lord even, he, um, he has this minion, just a low guy, peon down the totem pole, whose daughter is getting married. And he would like the great Alexander the Great to foot the cost of the wedding. But this guy, he's not bashful. He has in mind that he wants to do an all-out thing. It's his only daughter. He wants it to be a huge party celebration. So he, he comes to the treasurer, uh, Alexander's treasurer, and he says to him, um, yes, sir, I would like uh, uh, the good Alexander to cover the costs of my daughter's wedding. I've served you faithfully for many years in the empire, and I'm wondering if the emperor could, could pay for this uh, celebration. And the treasurer says, well, how much do you need? And the, the father of the bride tells him, and the treasurer is just totally flabbergasted and taken aback. He says, it's ridiculous. You can't do it. Uh, there's no way. There's no way you're going to get you and me killed if I ask Alexander for what you're asking for for this party. And uh, the, the man says, please, just please ask him. Please ask him. You know I've served you faithfully. Please just go before him and, and bring this. So with fear and trepidation, the treasurer goes before the great Alexander and offers up this request. Oh, thou great emperor, I'm so sorry to bring this to you. 
But this little peon, this man that you send one of the, you know, the form cards each year on Christmas, uh, one of these guys, his wife, his daughter is getting married, and he's asking for help for the wedding. Well, how much does he want, Alexander says. The treasurer tells him. And he says, I know, I know, it's crazy, I'm sorry, please don't get mad at me, do what you got to do to him, don't get mad at me. Alexander's quiet for a minute, and he says, give it to him. The treasurer says, what? Sure, sir, are you, are you sure this is an exorbitant amount? This is ridiculous. Are, are you sure? Alexander says, don't you see how this man honors me? He truly believes that I am both wealthy and generous. Give it to him. Uh, to me, that's a parable, an image of how much more when we come before our Lord from uh, hymn number 779. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Our prayers are limited by our imaginations, not by the generosity of our Lord. Two concluding takeaways then. First of all, thinking about God as our divine surgeon and great physician. If I can give you a prescription as your pastor, take 20 minutes with his word and call on the great physician in the morning. <laughs> you know, his word is through which he continues to do the work on you. And I know for all of us, we have busy lives and we think, I just don't know if I have the, the time to study the scriptures, to, to read the Bible. Do you have 20 minutes in the morning? Take just 20 minutes with his word in, in the morning and call on him. Pray to him. Even if it's just the, that simple prayer, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do today. I don't know what uh, I'm going on. Offer prayers for neighbors, for friends, for family, those whom he has put in your, your sphere of influence. Take 20 minutes with his word and call on the great physician each morning. And know this, that when Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to those who have the faith of a child. He wasn't fooling y'all. To have the faith of a child is like Luther says in the small catechism. Our Father who art in heaven, what does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father, that we are his true children, so that with all, what? Boldness and confidence. Say boldness and confidence. Boldness, boldness and confidence. confidence. We may ask him as dear children ask their dear father. And how do they do it? Pester power. With pester power. <laughs> pester power. And know this. He wants to be pestered because he is both wealthy and generous. Amen? Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. We will continue with Hebrews 5 next week.